Chapter 16 continued of McClellan's Own Story by George Brinton McClellan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Manalakis. At this time I received the following letter from the President. Washington, April 9th, 1862. My dear sir, your dispatches complaining that you are not properly sustained, while they do not offend me, do pain me very much. Blanker's division was withdrawn from you before you left here, and you know the pressure under which I did it, and, as I thought, acquiesced in it, but certainly not without reluctance. After you left, I ascertained that less than 20,000 unorganized men without a single field battery were all you designed to be left for the defense of Washington and Manassas Junction, and part of this even was to go to General Hooker's old position. General Banks's corps, once designed for Manassas Junction, was diverted and tied up on the line of Winchester and Strasburg, and could not leave it without again exposing the Upper Potomac and the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. This presented, or would present, when McDowell and Sumner should be gone, a great temptation to the enemy to turn back from the Rappahannock and sack Washington. My implicit order that Washington should, by the judgment of all the commanders of Army Corps, be left entirely secure, had been neglected. It was precisely this that drove me to detain McDowell. I do not forget that I was satisfied with your arrangement to leave Banks at Manassas Junction, but when that arrangement was broken up and nothing was substituted for it, of course I was constrained to substitute something for it myself. And allow me to ask, do you really think I should permit the line from Richmond via Manassas Junction to this city to be entirely open, except what resistance could be presented by less than 20,000 unorganized troops? This is a question which the country will not allow me to evade. There is a curious mystery about the number of troops now with you. When I telegraphed you on the 6th, saying you had over 100,000 with you, I had just obtained from the Secretary of War a statement, taken, as he said, from your own returns, making 108,000 then with you and en route to you. You now say you will have but 85,000 when all en route to you shall have reached you. How can the discrepancy of 23,000 be accounted for? As to General Wool's command, I understand it is doing for you precisely what a like number of your own would have to do if that command was away. I suppose the whole force which has gone forward for you is with you by this time. And if so, I think it is the precise time for you to strike a blow. By delay, the enemy will relatively gain upon you, that is, he will gain faster by fortifications and reinforcements than you can by reinforcements alone. And once more, let me tell you, it is indispensable to you that you strike a blow. I am powerless to help this. You will do me the justice to remember that I always insisted that going down the bay in search of a field, instead of fighting at or near Manassas, was only shifting and not surmounting a difficulty that we would find the same enemy and the same or equal entrenchments at either place. The country will not fail to note, is now noting, that the present hesitation to move upon an entrenched enemy is but the story of Manassas repeated. I beg to assure you that I have never written you or spoken to you in greater kindness of feeling than now, nor with a fuller purpose to sustain you, so far as, in my most anxious judgment, I consistently can but you must act. Yours very truly, A. Lincoln. The portions of this letter referring to the arrangements for the defense of Washington and the Shenandoah 
have already been fully answered and need not be alluded to again in this place. As regards the discrepancy of 23,000 men, it is sufficient to say that my estimate was made from the actual latest returns of the men present for duty and was correct. I have no doubt that the number furnished the president was the aggregate present and absent, a convenient mistake not unfrequently made by the Secretary of War. The number I gave was correct. That furnished the president was incorrect. In regard to the employment of Wool's command, the authorities in Washington failed to perceive the irony of my remark in my telegram of April 7th, to the effect that the only use that could be made of his command was to protect my communications in rear of the point I then occupied. There were no communications to protect beyond Ship Point, and there was no possibility of the roads to Fortress Monroe being troubled by the enemy. Wool's troops were of no possible use to me beyond holding Fortress Monroe, and would have been of very great use if the surplus had been incorporated with the Army of the Potomac. The whole force sent forward had not joined me at the date of this letter. It was not until seven days later that Casey, Hooker, and Richardson reached the front line. They could not be brought up earlier. I have already shown the impossibility of attacking earlier or otherwise than we actually did. When in front of Sebastopol in 1855, I asked General Martin Prey, chief of staff of the French army in the Crimea, how he found that the cable worked which connected the Crimean with the European lines of telegraph. He said that it worked admirably from the Crimea to Paris, but very badly in the opposite direction, and by way of explanation related the following anecdote. He said that immediately after the failure of the assault of June 1855, the emperor telegraphed Pellissier to renew the assault immediately. Pellissier replied that it was impossible without certain preliminary preparations which required several weeks. The emperor repeated their preemptory order to attack at once. Pellissier repeated his reply. After one or two more interchanges of similar telegrams, Pellissier telegraphed, I will not renew the attack until ready. If you wish it done, come and do it yourself. That ended the matter. Referring for a moment to the President's dispatch of April 6th, it is well to recall the facts that at that time, instead of 100,000 men, I had, after deducting guards and working parties, much less than 40,000 for attack, and that the portion of the enemy's lines which he thought I had better break through at once was about the strongest of the whole, except perhaps the town itself. The impatience displayed at that time, after so greatly reducing my force, is in remarkable contrast with the patience which permitted Grant to occupy months in front of the lines of Petersburg, far inferior in strength to those of Yorktown. On the 22nd of March, I had prepared the following. Confidential Memorandum. For the operations against Yorktown, Richmond, etc., where we will probably find extensive earthworks heavily garrisoned, we shall require the means of overwhelming them by a vertical line of shells. I should therefore be glad to have disposable at Fortress Monroe. 1. First, 20 10-inch mortars complete. Second, 28-inch mortars complete. 2. 28-inch siege howitzers. 3. 20 4.5-inch wrought iron siege guns. 4. 40 20-pounder parrots. 5. 40 24-pounder siege guns. The 20-pounder parrots with the batteries will, of course, be counted as available. I do not know the number of 4.5-inch guns available, 
If not so many as I have indicated, something else should be substituted. I wish General Barry and Colonel Kingsbury to consult with General Marcy to make such suggestions as occur to them, and ascertain at once to what extent this memorandum can be filled. It is possible we cannot count upon the Navy to reduce Yorktown by their independent efforts. We must therefore be prepared to do it by our own means. There are said to be at Yorktown from 27 to 32 heavy guns. At Gloucester, 14 Columbiads. The probable armament of Yorktown, when exterior guns are drawn in, will be from 40 to 50 heavy guns, from 24-pounders to 8-inch and perhaps 10-inch Columbiads. Before leaving Washington, I detailed Colonel Robert Tyler's 1st Connecticut Regiment as heavy artillery, and placed the siege train in their charge. It will be seen, as the narrative proceeds, how admirably the splendid regiment performed their most important duties at all times, and under the most trying circumstances. As soon as it became clear that no aid was to be had from the Navy, and that we must reduce Yorktown by a front attack, I took steps to increase the number of heavy guns and mortars to the extent shown by the statement of batteries given hereafter. The number of officers of the Corps of Engineers and of the topographical engineers at my disposal was so small that it was necessary to supplement them by civilian employees kindly furnished by Professor Batch of the U.S. Coast Survey and by details from the line. These civilian employees vied with the officers of the Army in the courage, devotion, and intelligence with which they performed the dangerous and important duties devolving upon them. There were but twelve officers of the engineers, including four on duty with the three companies of engineer troops, and six of the topographical engineers. These officers at once proceeded to ascertain by close reconnaissances the nature and strength of the enemy's defenses and character of the ground, in order to determine the points of attack and the nature of the necessary works of attack. Meanwhile, the troops were occupied in constructing roads to the depots. General Sumner reached the front on the 9th of April and was placed in command of the left wing, consisting of his own and the 4th Corps. He was in front of the line of the Warwick, while the 3rd Corps was charged with the operations against Yorktown itself. The following dispatch to Secretary Stanton shows the condition of affairs at its date, April 11th. The reconnaissances of today prove that it is necessary to invest and attack Gloucester Point. Give me Franklin's and McCall's divisions under command of Franklin, and I will at once undertake it. If circumstances of which I am not aware make it impossible for you to send me two divisions to carry out the final plan of campaign, I will run the risk and hold myself responsible for the results if you will give me Franklin's division. If you still confide in my judgment, I entreat that you will grant this request. The fate of our cause depends upon it. Although willing, under the pressure of necessity, to carry this through with Franklin alone, I wish it to be distinctly understood that I think two divisions necessary. Franklin and his division are indispensable to me. General Barnard concurs in this view. I have determined upon the point of attack and am at this moment engaging in fixing the position of the batteries. The same day the following reached me. By direction of the President, Franklin's division has been ordered to march back to Alexandria and immediately embark for Fortress Monroe. L. Thomas, Adjutant General. I replied to the Secretary, I am delighted with Franklin's orders and beg to thank you. I insert the following letter from my venerable friend, Francis P. Blair, as an indication of the state of feeling at the time. 
Washington, April 12, 1862. Major General G.B. McClellan. My dear sir, there is a prodigious cry of on to Richmond among the carpet knights of our city who will not shed their blood to get there. I am one of those who wish to see you lead a triumph in the capital of the Old Dominion, but am not so eager as to hazard it by hurrying on too fast. The veterans of Waterloo filled the trenches of General Jackson at New Orleans with their bodies and their blood. If you can accomplish your object of reaching Richmond by a slower process than storming redoubts and batteries and earthworks, the country will applaud the achievement which gives success to its arms with greatest parsimony of the blood of its children. The envious Charles Lee announced his superior Washington as gifted too much with that rascally virtue prudence. Exert it and deserve his fame. Your friend, F.P. Blair, Silver Springs. My retained copy of the following letter is not dated, but it must have been written somewhere about the 20th of April. Headquarters, Army of the Potomac, near Yorktown. Honorable E.M. Stanton, Secretary of War. Sir, I received today a note from Assistant Secretary Watson, enclosing an extract from a letter the author of which is not mentioned. I send a copy of the extract with this. I hope that a copy has also been sent to General McDowell, whom it concerns more nearly, perhaps, than it does me. At the risk of being thought obtrusive, I will venture upon some remarks which perhaps my position does not justify me in making, but which I beg to assure you are induced solely by my intense desire for the success of the government in this struggle. You will, I hope, pardon me if I allude to the past, not in a captious spirit, but merely so far as may be necessary to explain my own course and my views as to the future. From the beginning I had intended, so far as I might have the power to carry out my own views, to abandon the line of Manassas as the line of advance. I ever regarded it as an improper one. My wish was to adopt a new line based upon the waters of the lower Chesapeake. I always expected to meet with strong opposition on this line, the strongest that the rebels could offer, but I was well aware that upon overcoming this opposition, the result would be decisive and pregnant with great results. The circumstances, among which I will now only mention the uncertainty as to the power of the Merrimack, have compelled me to adopt the present line as probably safer, though far less brilliant, than that by Urbana. When the movement was commenced, I counted upon an active and disposable force of nearly 150,000 men and intended to throw a strong column upon West Point either by York River, or if that proved impracticable, by a march from the mouth of the Severn, expecting to turn in that manner all the defenses of the peninsula. Circumstances have proved that I was right, and that my intended movement would have produced the desired results. After the transfer of troops had commenced from Alexandria to Fort Monroe, but before I started in person, the division of Blanker was detached from my command a loss of near 10,000 men. As soon as the mass of my troops were fairly started, I embarked myself. Upon reaching Fort Monroe, I learned that the rebels were being rapidly reinforced from Norfolk and Richmond. I therefore determined to lose no time in making the effort to invest Yorktown, without waiting for the arrival of the divisions of Hooker and Richardson and the First Corps, intending to employ the First Corps in mass to move upon West Point, reinforcing it as circumstances might render necessary. The advance was made on the morning of the second day after I reached Fort Monroe. 
When the troops reached the immediate vicinity of Yorktown, the true nature of the enemy's position was for the first time developed. While my men were under fire, I learned that the First Corps was removed from my command. No warning had been given me of this, nor was any reason then assigned. I should also have mentioned that the evening before I left Fort Monroe, I received telegraphic dispatch from the War Department informing me that the order placing Fort Monroe and its dependent troops under my command was rescinded. No reason was given for this, nor has it been to this day. I confess that I have no right to know the reason. This order deprived me of the support of another division, which I had been authorized to form for active operations from among the troops near Fort Monroe. Thus, when I came under fire, I found myself weaker by five divisions than I had expected when the movement commenced. It is more than probable that no general was ever placed in such a position before. Finding myself thus unexpectedly weakened and with a powerful enemy strongly entrenched in my front, I was compelled to change my plans and become cautious. Could I have retained my original force? I confidently believe that I would now have been in front of Richmond, instead of where I now am. The probability is that that city would now have been in our possession. But the question now is in regard to the present and the future rather than the past. The enemy, by the destruction of the bridges of the Rappahannock, has deprived himself of the means of a rapid advance on Washington. Lee will never venture upon a bold movement on a large scale. The troops I left for the defense of Washington, as I fully explained to you in the letter I wrote the day I sailed, are ample for its protection. Our true policy is to concentrate our troops on the fewest possible lines of attack. We have now too many, and an enterprising enemy could strike us a severe blow. I have every reason to believe that the main portion of the rebel forces are in my front. They are not drawing off their troops from Yorktown. Give me McCall's division, and I will undertake a movement on West Point which will shake them out of Yorktown. As it is, I will win, but I must not be blamed if success is delayed. I do not feel that I am answerable for the delay of victory. I do not feel authorized to venture upon any suggestions as to the disposition of the troops in other departments, but content myself with stating the least that I regard as essential to prompt success here. If circumstances render it impossible to give what I ask, I still feel sure of success, but more time will be required to achieve the result. Very respectfully, your obedient servant, George B. McClellan, Major General Commanding. The affair known as the One-Gun Battery is explained by the following instructions and statement. Headquarters, Army of the Potomac, Camp Winfield Scott, April 15, 1862. Brigadier General W.F. Smith, Commanding Division. Sir, you will please advance tomorrow morning to stop the work now being carried on by the enemy near and in rear of the One-Gun Battery. This can probably be most readily accomplished by throwing sharpshooters well forward to the edge of the stream, leaving in front of the work a clear interval through which four to six guns can shell the working parties in adjacent woods. Your flank towards Lee's Mill should be carefully watched, also towards Wind's Mill, communicating with General Gorman, who will have orders to prevent an attack upon your right flank from Wind's Mill. It is probable that by placing your guns near the burned chimneys as well as under cover as possible, they will accomplish the result. If the enemy are driven entirely away, advance cautiously a few skirmishers across the dam to penetrate the woods and ascertain whether there is any clearing near at hand where you can hold your own. 
in this event, cross over and send for immediate assistance, which will be promptly afforded. If you find the position across the stream dangerous and untenable, cut the dam. In any event, exercise the utmost caution before crossing the stream. The great object is to stop the work and merely to take advantage after that of any opportunity that may offer itself to push to advantage. I should prefer stopping the work and attacking when our preparations elsewhere are more advanced. I would prefer making the attack at the one-gun battery a part of a more general plan involving the use of batteries against Lee's Mill and other contiguous points. From the statement of Captain Hope, had since I wrote the foregoing, I imagine a position can be found on the road at a distance of some 1,200 yards, whence their works can be shelled with 10-pound parrots and probably spherical case from the Napoleon guns. I would be glad to learn that the work is stopped and the enemy taught a lesson. Please inform General Gorman of your instructions and inform me as early as possible of your arrangements. Very truly yours, George B. McClellan, Major General Commanding. P.S. I send this direct to you for the reason that it is too late to, to communicate it through the commander of the 4th Army Corps and give time to execute the movement at a sufficiently early hour. Upon reflection, I think it will, under present circumstances, be wiser to confine the operation to forcing the enemy to discontinue work. In compliance with these instructions, General Smith placed two brigades and three batteries on his left to guard against any attack from Lee's Mill and commenced operations with his remaining brigade and battery. He posted Mott's battery opposite the dam at a distance of about 1,100 yards from the works, sent in one regiment through the woods on the right with instructions to open fire on any working parties they might observe, another regiment on the left with similar orders, and held the remaining three regiments in reserve. As soon as our infantry opened fire, the enemy replied with shell, upon which Mott opened and kept up a sharp fire for about an hour until he silenced the enemy. About three o'clock, General Smith had placed 18 guns in position about 500 yards from the works, supported on either flank by Brooks' Vermont Brigade, Hancock's being brought up in support. Our guns then opened, the enemy replying for some time with rapidity. When their fire slackened, Smith ordered four companies of the 3rd Vermont to cross the dam and feel the enemy. On arriving at the crest of the work, they were met by the enemy in force, who had lain secreted and were forced to retire with a loss of about 20 killed and wounded, after having left the work for some minutes. Later in the day, after I had left the ground, another reconnaissance was made under cover of the artillery fire by the 4th Vermont on the right, the 5th and 6th on the left, but it was found impractical to push further than to the dam, which ground was held. During the night, strong entrenchments were thrown up, on the right for four guns within 300 yards of the work, on the left one with eight embrasures, and in the center one with four embrasures, the last two within 500 yards range. This reconnaissance was conducted with skill and great gallantry, the Vermont troops thus early giving earnest of the high qualities they so often displayed during all the war. The losses in killed, wounded, and missing amounted to about 150. The objects of the operation were completely achieved. We prevented further work at this point, prevented the enemy from using the crossing, and ascertained that the line could not be broken there without further preparation in the way of artillery, etc. The general plan of operations determined upon was to establish batteries of heavy guns and mortars bearing upon Yorktown and Gloucester, their water batteries, a line of works between Yorktown and the Warwick River, 
Wynn's Mill, and the one-gun battery about a mile lower down the Warwick. The general order regulating the details of the siege operations, as well as the instructions issued by General Fitzjohn Porter, who on the 26th of April was assigned to duty as director of the siege, are for the present omitted. I issued all orders relating to the siege through him, making him commandant of the siege operations, and at the same time chief of staff for that especial work. Under the circumstances of the case, some such arrangement was necessary to relieve me of too much personal labor, and it worked admirably. Ground was broken on the night of the 17th of April upon batteries 1, 2, and 3, it being only at that date that the necessary roads and bridges were completed and the requisite material collected. The first parallel was commenced on the morning of the 25th. The work was pushed with so much energy that by the night of May 3rd all the batteries were completed and nearly all armed. The armament would have been completed on the night of the 5th and fire opened the next morning. In all, 16 batteries were constructed, their full armament being two 200-pounder rifled guns, 12 100-pounder rifled, 10 13-inch mortars, 25 10-inch mortars, 7 8-inch mortars, 12 4.5-inch rifled siege guns, 12 30-pounder rifled guns, 32 20-pounder rifled guns, and two 8-inch siege howitzers, being 114 heavy guns and mortars in all. In order to conceal our purposes and complete the work with the least possible exposure, none of the batteries were opened except number one, which on the 30th of April opened with excellent effect upon the wharves of Yorktown and Gloucester in order to prevent the landing of supplies and men. It was intended to open with all the 114 guns and mortars at once in order to create the greatest possible moral and physical effect. Towards the close of the siege, it was apparent that the works at Gloucester could not be carried by assault from the rear without some preliminary work in the way of reducing the fire of their batteries on the land side, a matter requiring a good deal of time and force greater than a single division. With the force at my disposal, it was impossible to reinforce Franklin for that purpose, and I determined, late on the 2nd of May, to disembark that division and move it to the front, in order to employ all my force in the assault about to be given, and thus render the result as sure as human foresight could make it. On the 3rd, then, Franklin's division was disembarked, and was to have moved to the front on the 4th. As soon as the fire of the water batteries was silenced, the gunboats, reinforced by the Galena, under the gallant John Rogers, were to run by and take up a position in rear, whence they could get a nearer fire on the defenses and control the road leading from Yorktown to Williamsburg. When this was effected, the artillery of the land defenses silenced, and the garrison demoralized by the shell fire. The columns of assault were to advance from the nearest cover. The principal assault was to have been upon the line between the Warwick and Yorktown, a column being ready to assault the latter if the effect of the batteries justified it. The enfilading and two counter-batteries were prepared against Wind's Mill, which, with the dam next above it, would also have been assaulted at the same time with the main attack. The counter-batteries against Wind's Mill enfiladed the line stretching thence towards the one-gun battery, against which latter a mortar battery was also prepared. Under cover of these and the fire of the field batteries, an assault was also to be made on the one-gun battery. Under cover of the field guns of the 4th Corps, a feint was to be made upon Lee's Mill, to be converted into a real attack if the effect of the operations at other points opened the way thereto. 
the fire of our batteries would probably have enabled us to assault about noon. As the enemy were practically without bomb-proof shelters, the fire of our 42 mortars, 10 of which were 13-inch and 25 10-inch, should in five or six hours have blown up their magazines and rendered the works untenable for the garrisons. As many of their guns, all in the water batteries, were en barbette, the fire of our 72 heavy guns should in the same space of time have dismounted most of their guns, and as the mortars could well continue their fire until the assaulting columns had reached the immediate vicinity of the works, the success of the assault, with very little loss, was reasonably certain. In order to diminish the risk to the gunboats as much as possible, I proposed to flag officer Goldsboro and to Captain Smith, commanding the gunboats, that the gunboats and the Galena should run the batteries the night after we opened fire. If the effect of our fire had equaled our expectations so as to justify an assault during the first day's firing, I am very sure that Captain Smith would have run the batteries in broad daylight, without awaiting the cover of darkness. I have no doubt, whatever, that at the latest, the dawn of the second day would have seen the gunboats in the rear of the defenses, and the assault delivered with entire success and without any heavy loss on our side. General Johnston told me in Washington during the winter of 1882 and 1883 that one of his strong objections to holding Yorktown was his apprehension that the gunboats would force the batteries at night and thus render the position untenable. Other Confederate general officers serving there have told me that, in their opinion, at the time, the gunboats could easily have effected this on any dark night. Early in the morning of the 4th of May, it was found that the enemy had, during the night, evacuated all his positions, very wisely preferring to avoid the experiment of withstanding a bombardment and assault. We captured in the works, including Gloucester, 77 guns and mortars, supplied with the ordinary complements, and 76 rounds of ammunition to each. The captured pieces were as followed. One 10-inch Columbiad, 13 9-inch Dahlgren guns, 16 8-inch Columbiads, two 7-inch heavy guns, one 6.5-inch rifle, one 4.5-inch rifle, one 2.8-tenths-inch rifle, two rifled 32-pounders, one 8-inch siege howitzer, three 64-pounders, eight 42-pounders, 17 32-pounders, four 24-pounders, one 42-pound carronade, two 8-inch mortars, two 12-pounders, one 6-pounder. They had evidently removed such guns as they could, probably light guns. I have been much criticized for not assaulting Yorktown immediately. Perhaps the point has been made clear enough, but at the risk of repetition, I will say something more on the subject. Before starting from Fortress Monroe, the best information in our possession clearly indicated that the Warwick River ran nearly parallel with the James, instead of heading at Yorktown, and it seems certain that the road from Newport News to Williamsburg did not cross that stream, at least any important branch of it, and that it presented no obstacle to an advance. Upon these data were predicated the orders of April 4th, for the march of the next day, the 5th, according to which Heinzelman was to move into position close to Yorktown, while Keyes was to take up a position in rear of Yorktown at the halfway house. Keyes was also ordered to attack and carry whatever he found in front of him. Now let it be observed that at all points on the right, center, and left, we found the enemy's works fully garrisoned and provided with artillery. 
and that Keyes and his general officers reported that they found the position in their front so strong and so well provided with troops and artillery that it was impossible to assault with any hope of success. The same state of things was clearly the case in front of the right column where I was. Now it is very certain that the only thing to be done was to make close reconnaissances of the enemy's position in order to discover a vulnerable point. This course was followed, and the unanimous opinion of all was that certain preliminary siege operations were necessary. I assert without fear of contradiction that no one at that time thought an assault possible. Moreover, that when we saw the works abandoned by the enemy, it remained the conviction of all that, with the raw troops we had, an assault would have resulted in simply an useless butchery, with no hope of success. The statements made long afterwards by such men as Barnard were simply ex post facto opinions, gotten up for political purposes, and never could have been really entertained by them. The only fault to be found with the operations at Yorktown is in regard to the slowness with which some of the engineer officers operated. I was often obliged to make such reconnaissances as I did at Vera Cruz when a brevet second lieutenant of engineers to expedite matters. Had Duane been chief engineer, operations would have progressed much more rapidly. The cooperation of the Navy amounted to little or nothing. End of chapter.